You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey, good morning, River. It's so good to see you guys. And a great reminder, uh, not just in Psalm of the video, I love singing about the faithfulness of God. Isn't that so encouraging to know that wherever you are, what's going on in your life today, that God's faithful, faithful to you, faithful to be the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that... uh, we can count on and trust and depend upon God 100%. God is so ridiculously faithful to us. So, hey, if you're new to River, I want to just uh, say welcome to you. Glad that you're here this morning uh, to come and worship God uh, with us. And uh, this morning, we're going to celebrate our Lord's table together that Jesus, before he was crucified, uh, told us that we should regularly. He didn't tell us exactly how often, but he said, whenever you do, you know, this and remembering my body and blood which is given for you that it's a a reminder of my love and my crucifixion for you and so uh, this morning we're going to celebrate our Lord's death and a reminder of his grace and his redemption that he has for us but before we do that I'm going to share a little bit out of 1st Thessalonians so turn with me if you would in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 we're going to look at 1st Thessalonians 4 just the first uh, I don't know seven or eight verses in that passage last week we talked about the heart and uh, how so important the heart is for us in living our life that that God really cares about what's on the inside way more than the outside because God knows that who we really are is what we are on the inside everything around us we focus on the outside of ourselves not just behavior but um, just all the external things and God is always looking at the motivation and the focus of our heart now, Paul, as he's writing 1 Thessalonians, and God is, is, is guiding him by his Holy Spirit as he writes this word for us, takes one specific area of our heart and applies it that we need to focus on. And so read with me, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to talk about that subject this morning. The Bible says this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The Christian life, we've talked about it so many times before, but when you surrender your life to Jesus and trust Him, that's the beginning. That's not the end. That's not the finish line. That's the starting line. And Paul says, guys, just as you've begun, my prayer is that more and more, that you would walk in a way that pleases God, that our life with God ought to be progressively better, that our walk ought to be closer and closer with Him. It ought to have a progress to it. And he goes on and explains more and more. He says this, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, You see, when God saves us, He declares us to be holy. He declares us to be perfect. He makes a judgment as the judge of all the universe and says, you are righteous, you are good, you've not done anything wrong because He's the highest authority in the land. But then He says, and this is what sanctification is, He says, now I'm going to make in reality what I've declared you to be. And He spends the rest of His life not just declaring us righteous, he's already done that. In fact, he doesn't need to ever do it again. It's a one-time deal. But the rest of our life, there is this progressive growing in our relationship with him and holiness, and that's called sanctification. And he, he, he goes on and he says, and here it is, that you 
this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, needs to be controlled, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In this area, not at all. He says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, this is nothing new, I told you when I was there, God is a legal avenger, executing justice, even for his own kids when you don't follow this. He says in verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Whoever disregards this, whoever sets this aside, isn't just setting aside a good idea, isn't just setting aside morals. They're actually setting aside disregarding God himself. And this is the God who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. I want to talk with you this morning about this area of of sexual immorality. And, you know, why does God talk so often about this? I'll be really honest with you this morning. I was just like, do I really want to talk about this today? And uh, God encouraged me just in my quiet time in a special way. I won't take time with you, but just like, yeah, Sean, this is important. We need to talk about this. And so as we, we think about three things, why this is important is to, 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 to think about. The first one goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And I'm, I'm going to share with you some strategies. We're going to end up talking about some strategies to how to, to, how to handle temptation and those kind of things, but we need to kind of wade in and talk about the seriousness of what this is all about because we live in a culture that doesn't see this or realize this or accept it, but the first reason that God talks about this so much is because our our sexuality and our, our gender, all of that goes back to near the very core of who we are. Back in Genesis 1 verse 26, as God is there creating the world, it's God himself talking uh, himself. It's the picture of the Trinity communing among themselves together as one God, and I cannot fathom how that works. But the Bible says in verse 26, and God said, let us make man, or let us make people, let us in our image. And in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is not just poetic. Male and female, he created them. There's something really specific in here. This isn't meant to be nice and flowery. It's meant to reveal something, that there is something special about God who made men and made women, that together they represent the image of God in a way that neither do separately. So God made us and he gave us our gender. Now I want you to notice something here, that gender is tied very closely to sexuality. If you aren't in a situation where you're working as a teacher or at a school or working in human resources or some other areas, this may, may or may not get by you, but there is a distinction in our culture today between gender and sex or sexuality, okay? I, I want us to recognize that the culture may make those distinctions, but God does not. Genesis 1, right here, God gives us our gender. He made us male and female, 
And then verse 28, look at what the very next verse says. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Sexuality. Gender and sexuality in God's mind are tied together, com completely together. Now, the reason that this is such an important topic, why I believe God talks about it so often, is when we think about our identity of, of who we are, our gender and sexuality gets near the core of it more than most things. You know, you may be a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan, and that may be part of it. The whole world now knows you're a Yankees fan. I'm glad you represent your team well. I'm not a Yankees fan, but you, you may, I, if I'm gonna like a team, it's definitely the Red Sox, I'm sorry. So we're not supposed to like each other, but I do like you, Gary. So, so you may have a team that you like that's a part of your identity and you post it on social media and you root for them, but that's very different than say the, your nationality or the culture that you come from. That's a lot closer to your core, who you are or the family that you come from. But even deeper in your core, even past that, is your identity of your, your gender and sexuality, of who God made you. Now there's one thing, and according to this passage, it's even closer to the identity of who you are, and that even transcends gender, and that is you are an individual made in the image of God. That's really the core of who you are. And in fact, our salvation comes out of that core. There is no greater comment or identity that you could ever possess in this world than being somebody who is made in the image of God. You have incredible value and worth and are an amazing person with that in and of itself. And then out of that flows your identity and who God made you as male and female and all of that. So the two are tied together. So this topic comes up a lot in Scripture because it gets at the core of who we are. We're not talking about peripheral things here. We're talking about the very center, center of things. That's why in the culture around us today that this creates so much uh, passion and creates anger and creates all kinds of things because we're, we're talking about an area that gets at people's core identities, regardless of what somebody thinks about this topic. We're, we're getting at the heart of who they are individually. At our core, these, this area of our life goes in very, very deep. Second reason why God talks about this a lot. This world is sinful. And Paul was writing to a people in this church in this, that were in a town that was a morally loose town. It was a hookup culture, we might say. That was what was expected. That was what was common. Very similar and very not at all unlike what we are today. And so because it is so common, Paul is having to write to these new people who are followers of Jesus that knew what it meant to follow Jesus even in the area of their sexuality. Because they had come out of a background and had, had many experiences that, uh, that God says, that's not okay. That is not what I intended you to be. That's not what I designed you to be. You're not reflecting my image well. And so that culture is the culture in which we live where it's a common kind of thing. And the third reason is, is anytime you put people together, because this gets at our core, because of the culture that we live in, this, this idea of sexual morality, and, and let me define that for a second. In this passage, when it talks about sexual immorality, that is one blanket word that covers everything with any kind of sexual relationship outside of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, in a marriage bond. So every other expression, every other scenario 
um, is what Paul's talking about. And when, when we come together in community, so, so when you're at work, when you're at school, and even when we're at church, when we spend time with one another because our sexuality is at our core identity, we kind of carry that with us everywhere we go. And we're going to have those temptations and those passions and those things are going to be there. And they're going to come out towards other people at work, at school, at church. And so Paul is saying, hey, church, be careful that even together that you as a church body, that you're looking and, and responding to one another as you should. And certainly to outside uh, everywhere we go in the world around us. So it's a common, common issue. It's, it's who we are. You cannot escape any of that in, in the debates, in the the, the angst and the, the opinions and all of that will continue to fly more and more because we're talking about things that are way more than just sports, way more than even just our cultural identity heritage. We're talking about the core of who we are as individuals before God. Second thing I want us to recognize as we think about this topic is God wants, God expects us to please Him in every area of our life. You know, why didn't God just say, well, look, I made you as incredible people. You have a brain. Just go do what you want to do and just go enjoy, you know. Why? Why? Well, if you look at this, God expects us to please him in every area of life. That's what verse one says. He says, look, I urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk, which is code for live your life, and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, that our pleasing God ought to increase in our, our life. And then it goes on and says that you would, for this is the will of God in verse 3, your sanctification and your holiness, your living differently than the world around you. You see, God... It's not that God saves us and says, okay, you now have fire insurance, you're on your way to heaven, I'll see you in about 80 years when you die or however long we have. That's not the way God wants us to live. God redeems us, he forgives us, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that he could save us, so that he could be our father, so that he could snatch us out of sin and death and the grave and hell and all of that. But he doesn't just wanna do that in eternity, he wants to do it now, and so God expects that in every area of our life, you see, every area of our life has been tainted by sin, has been affected by sin. Even our identity, our, our sexuality has been tainted. In fact, that we bear the image of God, but that even is damaged and broken. And so God, when he saves us, says, now I want to practically begin to put you together in a way that reflects my holy character, my purity, my uniqueness, and I want to be building that into you, which means I expect your sexuality to be affected. We're broken, and even in that area of our life, and our culture all around it, and our, our shows on TV, you know, and online show it, and demonstrate it, and movies, and in relationships, it's always there. And God says, I want even in that area of your life, I am your God and you're responsible to, as my child to live before me in a way that pleases me. So because of that, this isn't just a little side issue. This isn't, uh, this isn't a church being, I don't know, heavy handed or opinionated or whatever. This is God saying, look, 
I'm trying to help you be, get back to what I originally intended for you and that which is broken. Third thing that I want us to recognize in this passage that Paul is reminding the church of, when we don't follow what God tells us to do here, we make an absolute mess. When we say, God, I know what you want to do. I know what you tell me to do, but God, I can't help myself. I feel this, and I have this desire, and God, I'm just going to do this, and I know what you say, but I'm going to set this aside. I want us to see the ramifications of this. Look what, look what God tells us here this morning, and this is a, a warning to us, and it's a reminder to us to, to, to not go there, or if we are going there, to stop going there and seek God's grace and forgiveness and help to remove ourselves out of that. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute, how to do that. But notice that what he says, he says in verse 4, he says that we, well, in verse 3, he says that we should abstain from it. We don't, shouldn't flirt with this. There's no messing around with this. Dabble in it. He says, abstain. That's zero tolerance. In fact, it's zero tolerance. I want you to notice this when it comes to the passion of lust, he's not just talking about an affair. He's not talking about somebody who's cheating on a spouse. He's not talking about a college student that's hooking up. He's talking about the desires of our heart. He's saying, guys, anything in your life that creates the passion of lust towards someone else is out of bounds and you're to be abstained from. You see, he's not talking about the physical action. He's talking about that which flows out of the heart that we just talked about last week. That all of this are the things in our heart. God has given us passion, but that passion should be aimed towards our spouse. I mean, think about it this way. If I'm trying to go to Syracuse for a meeting, uh, I am grateful for a 65 mile an hour speed limit. I would be more grateful for 70. And 75 might be nice, but I trust the statisticians and the whoever's responsible for the roads that says, you know, that's really not safe. And I would at least like to get there, even if it's a little slower, right? And without a ticket. So a car is a wonderful tool to go 65 miles an hour when it's pointed in the right direction. But take that same power, take that same energy and point it in the wrong direction. And that 65 miles an hour becomes a dangerous missile that brings destruction and death into our life. That's the passion inside of us. Aim toward our spouses. It's amazing what God has put inside of us that he wants that to be experienced and unleashed in that relationship. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, if you, if you have somebody that you love with and everything lines up and they know Christ and you know Christ, there's nothing wrong. It's better to get married than to burn with all that passion. It's better than to run your engine to the red line, if you will, and blow your engine than to, than to, and, and go ahead and get married. So do that. There's nothing wrong with it. But when we allow that passion and when we allow those interests and that, that, that lust that's ungodly lust towards anyone other than our spouse, then we've got a major problem on our hands. Whether or not we actually commit the affair, whether or not we actually follow through with the person, whether or not we click on the website, we've already got the issue when those things are in our heart. And here's the mess that it, that it causes. There's several things here, and we don't, thankfully we don't have time to, to dwell on all of this. Um, but he tells us, he says, 
He says, the will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality, verse 3, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. When you and I give place in our heart for that passion and lust towards somebody else, whether it's a picture, whether it's entertainment, whether it's a person, however that's playing out, we ultimately dishonor our own selves. We bring shame to our own bodies in that. There's a level of embarrassment and a shame before God. We dishonor ourselves, our bodies. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be dishonored by somebody else, and I don't like to ultimately do things that are dishonorable because it's embarrassing at the end of the day, and it's just, it's not cool. It's shameful. So we dishonor ourselves, and in the process, we act like a hypocrite. Look what verse 5 says. He says, we should know how to possess ourselves. I'm going to finish this whole thing with how do we do that? How do we learn and grow in that area? But he says in verse 5, he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. When you claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ on one hand, but you are giving yourself, I don't care whether it's pornography or an affair, you're creating an emotional attachment that's creating all of those things in your heart, you are living in your heart like a hypocrite. You're saying, on one hand, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He saves me. He's forgiven me. He's broken the power of sin. He's my God, and I want to please Him. But over here, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to do what feels good and what feels right to me. And I'm going to, this is who I am. And, and we live like a hypocrite. God says we act like those who don't, even know God at all. We act as if we don't even have a relationship with God. We act as if God's not even there. In fact, it goes further at the end. As I read to you in, in verse 8, he says, whoever disregards this, just the passion and lust of these things, disregards God himself. Now let me ask you, do you like to be disregarded ever? If you're at work, does it feel good when you're disregarded does it feel good when you feel like your spouse has disregarded you or just like cast your opinions or didn't even give you a second thought? As a parent, do you like it when your kids disregard you? Do you like it when your neighbor does things that just disregard? That never feels good, right? So here the God of heaven is saying, even if you don't commit the physical act, if you have those feelings and those thoughts, and that stuff's spinning around in your mind and in your heart, you've completely taken me as the God of the universe, and you've put me on the shelf and said, I don't matter anymore. Now, that, that's offensive. We're talking about God himself. We just set him aside in those moments. You see, we're acting very much when we're in, those wor- in that world. It's not about feeding our own you know, desires and our own ooh, interest and all of that, we actually are completely setting God, kicking him to the curb, throwing him in the ditch and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Folks, you can't do that without making a mess in your life. Now, every one of us has battled this. I've battled it. You battle it. It's the reality because this sin is the sin of the heart. These are very real issues, and it's why it keeps coming up all the time. But we, we disregard God. We act like a hypocrite. 
And then not only that, but we wrong our brothers and our sisters. We wrong the people around us. In verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother. That transgress means to kind of cross the boundary, cross the line. It's kind of close to trespassing. That we cross that line and we wrong our brother. I don't care if you're looking at pictures, videos, looking at a person. To be really blunt, whether the clothes are on or off, if those thoughts are going through your brain, you are, dis, you are, are wronging that other person. You're not only wronging that other person, you're wronging that other person's family. Everybody is somebody's daughter or son or mother or father or sister or brother, and we are absolutely treating them as we shouldn't. Don't fall into the lie today that somehow it's empowering for women to be able to walk around, you know, wearing very little clothes on or that kind of thing. Can I just tell you that is just absolute objectification of women and abusive. There's nothing empowering in that whatsoever and feeds the wrong picture all day long of that woman who's made in the image of God, who's way more than what her looks or, you know, may or may not be. Don't fall that ridiculous lie. The enemy is the one who manages to make right wrong and wrong right. He's the one that flips things upside down. That's never empowering. That's, that's absolutely f foolish. Uh, but you and I wrong others. We harm them. I'll be honest, even if it's consensual, we're wronging them. Because let's be honest, when we're talking about this area of life, we're really not in it for the other person. When we start going down this road, we're in it for ourselves. It's selfish, it's self-centered, we like the way it feels, we want that. We're not doing it for the other person. They're more like a drug or a narcotic that we're you know, getting a hit from because we like what that makes us feel like inside of ourselves. We don't genuinely care about them in those moments, not at all. We are wronging them. Folks, you can only, you can't, we make a mess in our life. We make a mess in other people's lives when we go down this, down this road. You, you cannot keep a family intact when you start playing this game. I, alcohol and drugs have ruined more families and I've seen the damage and destruction when that seeps in. I'm not just talking about DUIs and you know somebody getting killed, just the, the destruction that that brings into that, to those relationships. Right there with it is sexual immorality. The, the addiction to pornography, the affairs, the, the hurt and the pain that grief comes into the middle of that, it's, it's awful what it does, guys. Susan and I had been ministering. Uh, I was a, a pastor, a young pastor. I was probably 23, 24 years old, restarting a church. I won't tell you which town. Uh, so this was a long time ago, and nobody that uh, anything or anybody would know. But Susan and I had been meeting with this family, young, uh, fairly young couple, had a couple of younger kids, a younger girl and boy, and been sharing the gospel with them in their home. And uh, they'd become genuine friends, and they were getting closer to really trusting Christ. And, um, and it kind of came out, that, that especially from the wife, that she really wanted to know Jesus. But she surfaced two sin areas. One was her own, one was her husband's. 
And she's like, what do we do with this? I'm like, well, good news is, is that's what Jesus takes care of. Like, he came to fix that stuff. But the sin issue for the husband just, it, it grieved me. There, his dad, his parents lived across the street. And at least once a week, he would go across the street to his dad's house, take his young elementary age son with them, and they would watch pornographic movies together. Three generations of, of men. And it just so grieved me, the destruction in the middle of all of that. I just, a mess. I will tell you, this is an area of life. Sin tends to transfer. Everybody's worried about the coronavirus. I wish we'd be more worried about, you know, just some other sin issues in our world. Sin tends to carry from the parents. We as parents know, like, oh my goodness, my kids are little germ factories. They're giving me every little thing. Our kids pick up our sin issues. If we have anger, it tends to carry on. If we battle lust, if we battle covetousness, desiring, pride, those things tend to carry forward. I tell you that if you struggle in those areas of your life and you're a parent, your kids are probably picking up on that stuff without you even realizing it. And you're beginning to sow seeds in their life, let alone your own. So, guys, this makes a mess in our heart. And Paul is warning us, loving us enough to say, don't do this. We really are playing with fire. Now, the good news is this, and let me talk about the hope. is that our Lord Jesus loves us even though we have all battled this stuff. And let's be honest, we have all fallen in this area in some way, shape, or form or another. Multiple times, if we're being really honest with our lives. And God loves us still. And he sent his son Jesus to die and forgive us of all of that. And we matter to him. So there's tremendous hope. So I've talked very plainly and bluntly as Paul is trying to just say, hey, this matters. Don't follow the world around us. It'll destroy your life. It'll destroy the lives of those around you, and you will be passing it on to, to the people right underneath your own nose. Hey, let me give you quickly nine things. Oh, my goodness, Sean, we're going to be here for the next 45 minutes. We're not. Though these are going to go quickly. So if you're a note taker, you better get your pen and paper out. But nine things to help you when you struggle in this area of life. Number one, and this will, happen, this will help you in other scenarios too, but number one, see it for what it is. Don't write this off. Well, I didn't have an affair, I just looked. No, God says if you disregard any of this, this is the passion in your heart, you got the same problem. Don't dismiss it. See it for what it is. It's nothing but you putting God on the shelf, disregarding God, completely acting autonomous and separate from God himself. This is a big deal. Do not minimize it. Oh, everybody today just looks at pornography and sees it. Doesn't matter. God says, no, not for you. Call it like it really is. See it in reality. Don't excuse it. Don't make excuses. See it for what it is. Secondly, make a commitment in your heart to honor God. Sean, I've done that, but I still struggle. Hold on, I'll give you some more things. But it starts there. You've got to see what reality is, and you've got to make a commitment in your heart. God, I want to honor you. God, I'm struggling here. God, I have failed here. God, would you forgive me? Ask God for help in the middle of that. But you've got to make a, a decision in your mind and heart. God, I really want to do this, but I know I can't. God, would you help me? God loves to answer those prayers. Sean, I've prayed that so many times and I still struggle. And if I'm being honest, I've fallen. Yes, 
That's part of that progressive nature that Paul talked about, that more and more. So you may not be yet in your life where you want to be, but at least look back and say, I'm not where I used to be. And God is not only forgiving me, but he's changing me and he's, he's changing me on the inside. So continue to make that commitment and keep that before God. Third thing, do battle in your heart. The battle isn't physical. The battle's not online so much. The battle's not in the office. The battle's not when you're around that specific person. The battle's inside of your heart. That's what we talked about last week when I read all of those scriptures. It's out of the abundance of the heart all that stuff comes. If you make the battle out here with what you're clicking on online or what you're talking to or whether or not you should go to that person's uh, room or apartment or whatever in your world, you're going to lose that one every single time. That's not the battle line. You're fighting in the wrong space. You need to do battle inside of your heart and soul. God, would you change what this junk is inside of me? God, would you help me to deal with the, 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 whether it's pain and loneliness or whatever in the world is going on, but God, would you help me here? Would you help me in the middle of my emotion? Would you help me here? Do that, fight that. Fight for your own soul inside of your heart. When you, when you begin to win the battle there, the stuff out there begins to take care of itself. Do the battle in your heart. That's the battleground. Fourth thing, stop at the curiosity level. You don't need to know. When your brain says, oh, I wonder, click. Get in your brain. As soon as you say, I wonder, oh, I don't need to click. When you wonder, I wonder what that, no, stop at the curiosity level. Stop. You don't need to know. What you find out is dangerous to you. I, there's a part of me that would be interested to know a little bit of what it feels like to be bitten by a rattlesnake, but my brain kicks in and says, that's a really a dumb idea. I've been stung by a scorpion and I, that hurt like crazy. I don't recommend you to have those desires. Don't, you don't need to know. That's the slip on the, the slippery slope where you fall. I remember a number of years ago, I mean, it was probably, I was probably 30, 35. All my kids were really little, and we had one of those swing sets, you know, and had the slide, had the, 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 the plastic slide. And it had just snowed. It was wintertime, and I was outside with the kids messing around. It was Saturday. I remember it was Saturday afternoon because uh, Sunday was coming, I was preaching. And for some reason, it had just snowed, and there was snow on the slide, and I didn't feel like going down the ladder, but I didn't feel like sliding on the slide, because I think I had jeans on, I didn't get them all wet, so I thought, well, I'll just step, take a couple steps, and I'll jump off the slide. I wouldn't think of that at this age, because I know what happens. I took my first step off that slide, and I slipped. It was like on grease. I'm not exaggerating. I landed about six feet. No, I fell on frozen ground. Six feet in front of the slide. I must have flown vertically through the air. Six feet forward, and I'm not exaggerating. I was probably eight feet off the ground, knocked the wind out on my back. I had to crawl inside. I'm like, kids, get your mom. I mean, I literally crawled 50 feet into the house, crawled on the couch. I could not get up the rest of the day. I just thought, I don't even know if I can preach tomorrow. I just like, I feel, whatever superhero movies or people go bounce around, they, that's not reality at all, even close. I took one little step. That's what your curiosity is. Oh, I can handle that. No, you can't. By the way, how well did you handle things when you were a teenager, when your mom and dad? I can handle it. 
No, you didn't handle those very well either, right? We can't handle this, so stop at the curiosity level. Fifth thing, cultivate a daily relationship with God. You see, the Bible says don't live, don't do this, because you live like the, the Gentiles, the people that don't know God. You see, the, the issue that we're talking about is it's not primarily a sexuality issue. Believe it or not, it's actually primarily a spiritual issue, our relationship with God. Any of us, when we are struggling in this area and we are giving ourselves to those things and we're losing the battle spiritually, the real problem is, is that we are isolated from our God in heaven. That God is not enough. That our, our love relationship with God is not close enough. It's not meaningful enough. And we're trying to fill it with other things in our life. In fact, oftentimes we've got pain and hurts and loneliness and other stuff in there. And rather than turning to God, saying, God, would you help this? We turn to another avenue and another resource. And we end up going down this road because it begins to feel good. The real issue, you cannot overcome this area of sin in your life in a vacuum. You can't just stop. You actually have to say, God, I want you, would you, God, would you just daily walk with me? So cultivate a close relationship with God. I don't mean check the box, okay, I did my little Bible, I did my little prayer, I went to church, I did my thing. That's not a relationship. My wife, thankfully, has never once graded me on whether or not I did the, the tick marks of the things that week. God doesn't do that with us either. I'm talking about your heart. God, I want to walk with you today. God, would you help me to know you today? I mean, genuinely coming at this, saying, God, I want to grow and walk with you. If we can text people that we know today all the time, how much more can we pray and walk with God as we go through it? So cultivate that, that deep, close relationship with God. Sixth thing, rely on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to share these quickly because time's running. But look at verse 8. He tells us, he's like, you're not disregarding God, man, but God. And then he gives us the salve and the ointment who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He says, look, I'm not leaving you hopeless here. Don't do this, but look, here's the secret weapon. Here's the, the salve. I've given my Holy Spirit inside of you, so rely on the Holy Spirit. You're not without hope. You're not alone. Whether you're in isolation or whether you're in your community with others, but God, the Holy Spirit's there, so, so learn to rely on him. He will always provide a way of escape and grow you and, and work with you in that. Seventh thing, make healthy boundaries. Paul says, he says here, he says, everyone ought to know how to keep, control his body in holiness and honor. If you see a house that says, beware of dog, and you see a mean-looking dog out there, I don't mean a little chihuahua, I don't mean a little lap dog, you know, you're probably going to think twice about getting within range of that dog. And if that dog has a chain and it's coming and snarling at you right at that, you don't want that dog getting off the chain. What Paul is telling us is this is a dog inside of us that needs to be controlled. And each one of us, with God's leading, should know how to control that in our life. So that means having healthy boundaries. boundary that Susan and I have had for, for our entire marriage, and I still have it, is we, just, we do not make intimate friends of the opposite sex. I, we don't do that. Ladies, I love you. I will pray with you. We can be friends, but we're not going to be really tight friends. Ain't going to happen. The dog inside of me and the dog inside of you has got to stay where it needs to stay. Ladies, if you're struggling in your marriage, you should not be getting advice 
and confiding in another man. I don't care how nice they are and how caring they may seem to be, but you are setting yourself up for a major fall. That's often how affairs happen, that it's not quite so healthy at home, and then the, the wife knows somebody, you know, at work or church or whatever, well, they're nice and always treat me well, and before you know it, your heart turns. Have healthy boundaries, set those things up, and keep them there. Uh, all kinds of things. Students, you're not married, you ought to be careful where you're alone with the person that you are interested in. You can't handle it. Have good, healthy boundaries. Number eight, get accountable. This area of sin tends to stay secret. I shared a couple of weeks ago that the enemy, that's one of his key strategies, is keep us in isolation. In this area, because it is so personal, it is so close to our identity, we don't want to share this. Hey, everybody, look at this sin that I'm doing. You know, we don't want to do that. But we really want to keep this. And the enemy actually, we play into this hand and the temptation grows. You don't need to tell everybody and their brother, but tell somebody. Talk to somebody. Now, the reality is when we think about accountability, you're only going to be as accountable as you want to be. There's a little bit of a fallacy in there. Accountability is not the silver bullet that, that takes care of everything. In fact, if you had to pin me down on one thing on this list... Out of all of this list, I'd say, number one, cultivate a close relationship with God. If you can only do one thing, do that. But all of them together are helpful. But get accountable with somebody that loves you enough to tell you, hey, dude, we need to stop this. Or like, yeah, why are you really wanting to go over there? But get accountable. And number nine, change your habits. If you've got habits online that you end up going someplace, change them. If when you drive a certain way to work that these desires come up in your heart, remember, we're talking about desire level, not even action level, then find a new way to work. Well, Sean, that's inconvenient and whatever. I don't care. God said, if our eye is offending us, gouge it out. If our hand is offending us, cut it off. Now, he doesn't want us to literally do it, but what he's telling us is, is that when our, to keep our body under control, we got to be willing to do whatever it takes to do that. So change your habits. Begin to, to make things different. And if you need to talk, and for everybody that might be a little bit different, there might be some different things in there for you, but, um, but talk with somebody that's going to help you and help you be accountable in that area. Because bottom line, guys, is, is God wants to bless our relationships. This is the negative side of it. The positive side of it is God wants all of that passion and that desire to be towards somebody else. If I were to put a tenth one in there, for those of you that are married, I would say make sure you've got a really healthy relationship and that your spouse is the object of your eye and your heart and do everything you can to cultivate that. If you're not married and that is a hope of yours, then in your heart make God your passion and make your passion keeping yourself and preparing yourself for that one day. But God wants us to experience the incredible closeness that he desired, uh, that he made us with. And he, he wants that to be expressed in the husband and wife relationship. And when we don't, it's a disaster. So as I wrap up things and as we think about now turning our heart to Lord's Supper, Sean, that's a hard right-hand turn. Well, it's not as hard as you might think. This is actually twofold. We've all sinned and broken this, guys. All of us. As we celebrate this Lord's table, this should be a reminder that God has already forgiven us if you know the Lord Jesus. 
you're forgiven. You don't need to wallow around in past guilt and shame. God's forgiven you. If you really have trusted His Son, Jesus, as Lord, and if you really have confessed that before Him, and it's in the rearview mirror, then this morning you should celebrate that and say, thank you, God, for that. This table should be an encouragement, a reminder that God came to heal and fix those things in your heart. If you're currently living and battling those things, Paul warns us in, in the book of 1 Corinthians that we shouldn't be living in such a way in rebellion before God and disregarding Him. Because actually, this can participating in this, which is, which is hypocrisy, if you're living in this kind of sin, you're putting God on the shelf. But then on the other hand, you're saying, oh God, you're so important to me, and this is so, represents what's so important to me, my relationship with you and salvation. But then you're saying, but God, you're really not important to me. It's hypocrisy. And the early church in Corinth suffered judgment for it. And Paul said, you're better off not taking this if you are living in that world. So I would urge you, if that's your world right now, that you ought to let this plate, these two plates go by. And your focus ought to be praying on God. God, would you forgive me? God, help me. God, what are my steps that I need to take to deal with this? Well, Sean, I'm, does that mean I wasn't going to take the Lord's Supper now? Is everybody going to think that I'm in the middle of a bad affair? No, <laughs> not at all. There's other reasons why you might not want to do that this morning, all right? Can we all agree to that? Just let everybody have their space and do their thing. But God wants us to come to him. Well, Sean, I don't... I, I'm a sinner. I don't know if I'm holy enough to come to this. You're not. Neither am I. But God forgives us. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He does expect us to be making progress. All right? That's what we're talking about this morning. Forgiven and progress. So if you can come this morning, and Sean, I am struggling with those things. But, you know, I genuinely confess that, and I'm genuinely working through it then by all means, come and celebrate and be encouraged that God of heaven loves you and forgives you. Well, Sean, what if I do it again, even after taking this? It's not okay, but it is okay. It's not an excuse. But God, God expects you to grow, to deal with it. Does, does that make sense, guys? We should come to this. It's important. God wants us to celebrate that. He wants to share His grace. This is a this is a picture, in essence, of what God wants to do on the inside for you and me to more and more experience His, His forgiveness, the changed life, and the changed heart that we have through the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.